your praise. All creation glorifies your name. Angels bow before your throne. The heavens shine for you alone. All creation glorifies your name. All creation glorifies your name. Sing it holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Worthy, all the earth is filled with your glory, glory. somebody this morning and tell them good morning. Before the world was made, before you spoke it to be, 
Chad already asked you if you had a good Thanksgiving, and you said yes. And uh, now we got to wake up a little bit and get back into our weeks. And actually, I love the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Lots of uh, festival, mu festive music, and uh, we get to think a lot about the birth of our Lord and uh, get to be friendly with people as they cut us off in the stores. Well, I'm glad you're here. Today is a day of travel for a lot of our folks coming back and being away, and we'll pray for them this morning. And we had a family yesterday. Uh, Shelby Havard got married, and uh, that was an exciting, very God-centered uh, wedding, and that was uh, an exciting thing to uh, to see. And about 55 folks of, that, of ours went on a cruise and came back and survived, and I don't think anybody got seasick. And so it's been a good week. I hope you had fun with your family, and uh, 
And uh, I, I know that uh, as we get back into things, you celebrate their coming, you celebrate their going. And, and uh, now let's put our eyes on the Lord and enjoy him this season, okay? It's, a, it's an awesome thing. And I, I, as I've been thinking about Christmas, I've been, uh, one of the things that we don't think about very often is the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come. They had all been taught about his coming in Hebrew school. And then he comes, and they were surprised that he had come. And, uh, you know, we wait for the Lord's return in the same way. We anticipate his coming back. He promised that he would come back. He tells us to wait for him patiently, keep our eyes on his return, not in the way that many of us do where you raise money and sell books, but in a way we just look forward to him redeeming us uh, ultimately. And, and uh, so we, we, we can still sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus during this season, even for us now. So I, I uh, hope and pray that as you work through this season that you will look forward to his return as well as we celebrate his once coming on the donkey. So anyway, those are just Christmas thoughts. They're free. I won't charge you for that. I have nothing to do with today's message. But uh, if you take your worship guide, I only want to highlight a few things today. In your worship guide is a uh, holiday schedule for Christmas stuff upcoming. Lots of stuff going on, and we want you to be a part of as many of those as possible. Julie and I and the staff will be hoping, hosting an open house on December 9th in our home. You just come and go as you like. We'll have some cookies there, but it gives the staff a chance just to hug your neck and say Merry Christmas. Uh, also, Wednesday night. We are going to uh, decorate. Uh, children's stuff is going to be going on as normal, but as for adults, we'll be decorating this place for Christmas, so plan on joining us for that at 6.30. And uh, then we have a movie night on the 15th of December. We're going to be showing that, that great Christian movie, The Santa Claus. And uh, what? It isn't a Christian movie? Anyway, it's going to be fun. It's a chance for us to spend time. That night is really important, though, because we're having an ugly sweater or costume contest. So sometimes they're the same thing. So uh, that night we will be giving away valuable prizes that night. So you'll want to, uh, you'll want, why are you laughing? It's seriously, seriously prizes. When I was a youth pastor, we used to always say we're going to give away valuable cash prizes. And it usually was foreign currency. <laughs> yep. It's amazing how many pesos you can give away. And kids usually think, oh, it's a lot of money. And then they try to exchange it in like eight cents. Okay. Anyway, you got the stuff. Christmas Eve service, family Christmas that morning. On that's uh, this year, we're going to do the Christmas Eve candlelight service on December twenty fourth. I'm going to try that one more time. This year, we're going to do our Christmas Eve candlelight service on December twenty fourth. Some of you, that was not a real laugh. That was never mind. Also, there's an orange insert, and that's our prayer guide. Be praying for each other. Just because Christmas comes and the holiday season doesn't mean people aren't hurting, and, and uh, we want to remember those. So I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time, and we're going to prepare for our offering. Uh, this is for those who attend here regularly. Oh, the Havards are here. Congratulations. Your daughter is no longer your responsibility, huh? <laughs> you know, when Zach went off to college and then Annie, people are like, don't worry, they come back. And I'm like, I'm going to miss them. And now it's like, wow, they do come back, don't they? What, uh, I, don't, we're, I don't know if you were here. I, I thought that was the most God-centered. I didn't do the wedding, so I can say this, but it was one of the most God-centered weddings I've ever been to. I really thought it was cool. The family actually, when you do the, uh, normally do the unity candles, they had the family come and gather around them and lay hands, and whoever wanted to from the congregation got to lay hands on them and pray over them, and that was, that was pretty special. I thought that was very, very meaningful. So, you know, we glorify God in all of our activities, don't we? So uh, let's just remember that, too, in this holiday season. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you, and we're thankful that you love us and, and that we can gather together, uh, even this week of busyness, and just celebrate you and your goodness to us. 
And uh, I thank you for this morning's uh, text in 1 Samuel. I was really touched by it. I, I forget the things that I, w I learned uh, this last week through it. So I just pray that, uh, that you would stir us on, uh, encourage, encourage us, especially those that are hurting this morning, those whose hearts are heavy. Uh, I pray that they would feel uh, normal and encouraged and directed. Uh, Lord, as we sing songs, thank you for the, the gifts that are used up on the stage and that they can guide us and and, uh, Lord, that we can sing songs that lift you up and worship you. And I thank you for every part of our gatherings, that we get to see each other and hug each other's necks and tell each other we're praying for each other and we love each other. And I pray we would pray for each other. For those that are traveling today, our college kids as they're flying back or driving back, keep them safe. For our, uh, for our families that are coming back from vacationing and family, keep them safe as they come back. And as we go back to work tomorrow, you know, it's always kind of hard to get up on the day you go back to work and kind of grumpy because you want a few more days. But... Lord, that's our mission field, and I pray that you would help us remember that it's a privilege, Father, to interact with folks, and uh, it's a privilege to live and to be busy, and thank you for all of that, and, and you've just been so good to us in ways we can't even imagine. So remind us of that this morning. We do love you, and we're thankful that you loved us first, even when we were, even before we were aware of your, your existence and your mercy. So, so Father, bless us today. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.
Oh 
to the God who moves the mountains. The earth is shaking, the weary waking, to the God who moves the mountains, the God who moves the mountains. a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. Because 
That's uh, Nancy Mises' nephew. Uh, also wrote, help me out here, I'm going to kill it. They, we Believe. Uh, and uh, man, that's a great song. And I hope that half the uh, worship team won't leave because I think we're going to need to sing that at the end because it fits. It'd be a great way for us to end. I'll let you know, depending on how long the preacher goes. So <laughs> that's funny. That wasn't the funny joke this morning. Before, uh, before we actually jump into today's text, so you can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel because that's where we're starting this morning. I, uh, I want to make a factual correction from the last couple of weeks' messages. Uh, I kept wrongly saying that the year of Jubilee was every seven years. For those of you here, you'll understand why that matters. Um, it's actually uh, the year after seven, ju seven years. So it's the 49th year, the year after that. So every 50 years in the Jewish calendar, and, and just in case you're not clear, the Jewish calendar is different than the Greek calendar that we use, but it's the 50th year of the Jewish calendar that was the year of Jubilee. Um, now, having said that, I, I want to I make sure you understand that what happens between Ruth and Boaz is not a year of jubilee event. Uh, she is requesting under Jewish law to be redeemed by this man, and he has to accept that invitation, and he does. So that's separate, but I kept bringing up, and, and it's going to come up in this week's message as well. It was God's intention when they enter the promised land that the families that he gave that land to would maintain that land forever. That was a gift from God to that family, and whether through poverty, bad choices, uh, leaving the nation... Uh, it was God's intention that at some point in the future that that family would, re would be reinstated as owner of that, prop uh, as the, of that property, that, uh, of that family, and that they would maintain it forever. So uh, Ruth being uh, redeemed as a kinsman redeemer by Boaz, that's a different set of laws, but God so badly wanted this to happen that every 50 years, after 49th year, after seven sevens, that God instituted the year of Jubilee, and I, I kept saying every seven years because I had seven in my brain, but it's every 50th year. So uh, anyway, biblicists believe that the book of Ruth was written by Samuel and that its core purpose, despite all the stuff we learned, and I've gotten a lot of feedback from our, our look at Ruth, but its purpose was actually to tell why uh, David's lineage, to tell uh, who was in that lineage. Uh, it's important that we understand that we look at David, king of Israel, the greatest king of all. He still uses star. We look at him as purebred Jew, but he wasn't. I mean, he wasn't. In his family, you have, you have Ruth, who is a Moabite great-great-grandmother. Great you have a great-great-great-grandmother who is Rahab uh, out of Jericho. And it's important that we understand that. And for, for historical reasons, God and Samuel wanted us to know that. Well, it's believed... It's believed also that Samuel, the book of Samuel, which, by the way, in the Hebrew Bible is one book. In the Greek Bible, it's two, and our Bible is based upon the Greek Bible. Uh, we have First and Second Samuel. We believe is written by Samuel and men around him for our recording. Uh, the story is being told during this time. It's a transitional book that takes us from the time of the judges... Uh, which Samuel is the last God-ordained judge. And by judge, it doesn't mean he sits on a bench. It's a general who le led the nation. There is a historical period of Judaism where they went from being in slavery and then led by Moses, their deliverer, out of slavery, but he's not allowed to take them into the promised land. And God establishes Joshua, 
the next general of the nation. And then there's about, we believe, 12 or 13 judges who are ordained by God, depending on what your theological purview is. But, but the, it is generally agreed that Samuel, although he is a priest and although he is a prophet, is the last God-ordained uh, a judge that the nation has. Uh, this is important because as we go through this, uh, what will be a long study, uh, as we go through this and look at stuff, uh, we will learn, uh, watch as, as the nation transitions from judges to God as king to human kings. And you will and I will look together as a young man defeats a giant in the power of God and then the man king over him wants to kill him basically because of that. We're going to watch the difference. Uh, Samuel, when he writes, and those who write these, they parallel people nonstop. Samuel's really good at that, and it's really clearly seen in the Hebrew, and part of my job is to point that out. But you've already seen that in the book of Ruth. That's why a lot of people believe that he wrote Ruth, because Ruth actually parallels Orpah and Ruth. Remember? Two daughters-in-law, both encouraged by Naomi, to go back to their gods, go back to their homeland. It'll be better for them if they do. And one stays and commits herself to the God of Naomi. So you'll have parallels throughout. And throughout this, you're going to have Saul and David paralleled. You're going to have uh, Samuel paralleled with Eli's sons. That'll be interesting over the coming weeks. But the book is a trend. These, these books, and I can refer to it as a book or these books, First and Second Samuel, are actually a transitional book explaining how Israel went from a ragtag group of family-led people to a nation and how they screwed it up. And I'm going to argue at the end of this that at the end of Second Samuel, I'll tell you what happens from them to then to now, and, and you're going to have to stay here for a couple of years to get there. But at the end of that conversation... I want you to realize that all of that other stuff in the Old Testament that gets confusing, like the minor prophets, you know, what, what's up with, you know, all these people? They all fit into the story. Because after the nations turn, after these kings get sinful, uh, and uh, it's, it's never the same, and the nation divides into two nations, and they actually start fighting each other, and God chooses one nation. And in that time, though, after the kings have turned their back on God, and the nation has turned its back on God, God begins to call them to himself through what are known as prophets, okay? And just so, giving you an overview here so you understand these, and I'll keep reminding you of this, but prophets were Old Testament policemen. That's all they were. Basically, the king of the nation of Israel, who is Jesus, would give a message to a prophet, and he wasn't a dude who said, this year you're going to sleep a lot. That's not what it was. Or you're going to have a good year. You're going to find a husband. These were guys who would say, thus saith the Lord. And when they did that, every word they spoke was exactly what God told them to say. They weren't, they weren't putting their own words into it. These were men and women, and there were women prophets, that spoke on behalf of God to a nation to call them back to repentance. That's why their, their jobs were hard. Uh, Jeremiah was a depressed man. And, uh, and, and I'll mention that in a few minutes. He was depressed because every time he prophesied, it was bad news. They called him a weeping prophet. Nobody wants to bring bad news all the time. And these guys would go, and eventually, instead of repenting, the national leaders would try to kill them. That's why it stunk to be a prophet. Whenever somebody goes, look, I, I have the gift of prophecy, and I'm pretty proud of it, it's because they really don't know what prophecy's like. It's a tough job. 
And the prophets were cops. That's all they were. They were, they were, they were people who spoke on behalf of God to say, look, you've, you've turned left or you've turned right here, and I need to call you back to this. So after this period of kings, there's always kings, just like even today, you have a prime minister of Israel. I, I want to make it clear that Israel today is still in rebellion against God. They have still not fulfilled their, their part of the Mosaic Covenant, which is when you turn your back on me, and we'll spend time there too in Chronicles, when, they, when, when the, the Solomon's temple or Saul, uh, was dedicated, it was laid out, now you're going to turn your back on me. And the people said, no, we'll never turn our back on you. And God goes, no, you're going to turn your back on me. But when you do, here's the good news. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear you from heaven. I will forgive your sin and I'll heal your land. That was a promise God made to the nation of Israel. That is still in effect today. And I know that because I know that one day they will. I know that. At the end of the tribulation period, forgive me if you don't believe in a little, literal seven-year period. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I do, so I get to teach this. But at the end of that seven-year period is a battle called the Battle of Armageddon. Scripture teaches that, where all the nations of the world come up against the nation of Israel in a valley of Megiddo. It's a valley in, in Israel. And it's going to be an ugly war. And as the people of the world surround the nation of Israel, guess what nation of Israel does? They turn to God. If my people who call by my name, Israel, that's God's name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked, wicked ways. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Guess what he does? At the battle of Armageddon, he defeats the armies of the world, and he, he takes, uh, it tells us at the end of that, he, Jesus himself will take the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem and reign for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom. And as, as I've already mentioned this morning, I want you to remember as you think about Christmas, and it's, it's so hard because we've had this our whole lives. It's part of our DNA now. It's kind of boring. I mean, Bing Crosby is more romantic to me than the story of the nativity, and that's just because I'm saturated with it. But the truth is, as the Jewish, and, and, and I, uh, Nancy wrote a script for our family Christmas, and it's so good because it talks about the anticipation uh, of, of the coming Lord. And, it's, it, and I want you this year to really fixate on the fact that these people, the Jews were looking forward to a Messiah coming. They just didn't like his version of it. But they were looking forward to the Messiah coming. And, you know, it's the same with us. We kind of, those of us who, who, who are trying to walk with God and study the scriptures are so tired of people telling us God is coming a week from Friday, aren't we? And they take the book that they didn't sell 10 years ago and they put a new cover on it and they tell us why they were right, only their dates were wrong. I mean, who's the Yahoo that said God was coming in August and then when he didn't come in August, he said, I was a month off, go ahead and buy my book. I mean, I'm sick of being sold this junk. Well, beyond all that junk is a basic truth, and that is God is coming back, and he will take the throne. And we should still try, at the best of our ability, while we're dealing with real life, to anticipate his return, because that is our blessed hope. That really is. All of this stuff, if, if you get diagnosed with cancer in 2018, and the doctor cures you in 2018, the bad news is you're going to die of a heart attack three years later. Or whatever. You know what I'm saying? I mean, oh, you're a happy preacher. It's true. I mean, we're all going to, nobody, nobody survives this life. I mean, that's the, that's the tragic reality. Nobody makes it out of this place alive, uh, and, uh, except for the rapture. And I know a lot of us are looking forward to that, but, but nobody makes it out of here alive. Our hope is not found in living longer. Our hope is found in life after death, right? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection in life. I haven't even started my message yet. This is how good I am. But I, I want to put some context to your holiday. 
as you think about the Messiah coming, as you think about that little picture and everywhere it's going to be and Merry Christmas as you buy stuff and all that, and it's, it's fun. I, I'm not opposed. By the way, I'm all about commercialism during the season. I'm the, I'm the only pastor you know, and why? Because it gives us an opportunity to tell people about the real gift. Are you tired of the holiday? Well, I got news for you. Actually, the real Christmas has already been bought. The gift's been purchased. All you've got to do is accept it. Why would you leave it under the tree? Why in the world would anybody not accept the free gift of salvation? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, know. I don't understand that. I'd rather do it on my own. Okay, have at it. The fact that we're having that conversation tells me you're not satisfied with your own. But that's Christmas. And as you give ki- gifts to your kids, find a way, even with all the other stories that you tell, find a way to talk about why we give gifts at Christmas. Make sure that they understand that this is just mimicking what God has done for us. Please, your kids need to know that. They need to know that this isn't another fairy tale. It's the real deal. And God has been gracious beyond our measure. And now that we're saved, we do look forward to his return. You're going to see a piece of art on the wall this year that that, uh, Wendy and I designed. And it talks about, you know, his promise in the Old Testament, I'm coming. And then it has the manger scene in the middle. And then on the right, it goes, here, I'm coming back. And the top of it says, here I come. And he's coming back, you guys. He is coming back. And he's more excited to see you than you are him. How can I say that? John 17. When he's about to be arrested, he says, Father, I long for them to be with me like I get to be with you now. He longs for you to be with him. He loves us, you guys, a lot. Having said that, we really are going to get into uh, 1 Samuel this morning. Uh, and In fact, let's, let's pray for this study and ask God to, uh, to teach us a lot of neat stuff. Father, we, we love you, and, and we're so thankful for all that you have taught us in Ruth, a book that's familiar to us, but there's so much more. Uh, that we're learning, and we're learning one thing is that these people were real folks, and I ask you, Father, this morning to show us the reality of living down here under your plan, and how difficult that can be, and how we can trust in you. So I pray for this morning that you would teach us a lot from Hannah. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel 1, verses 1 and 2 says, there was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuth in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jehom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, of Ephraim. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. Because a family in this time was, sent, uh, was centered on family business. And, and there's no way, you guys know this generally, but there's no way to emphasize that enough. A woman's job, and I know that in our culture and our time where we're really sensitive to men and women, you know, like one person is in a better position than other, the sexism argument. Let me just tell you that in the biblical times, it was an honor for a woman to bring her husband children. That is what she lived for. Well, that's sexist. Stop it. That was culture. That's what they did. Why? Because it was a woman's job to make sure that the family business succeeded. Well, she could have got out there and made business decisions. Read Proverbs 31. She did do that. But ultimately, the most important business thing, uh, Ackerman, she brought to the table was actually providing her husband and the family business through him more sons to take on the family business. Because I, re- I want to remind you that it wasn't just a civic duty, it was a religious duty to keep the family property in family hands. See it? It all works together. A woman would give a man, her husband, sons, so that the sons could then, once he's dead, take on the family business and keep the family property in the family name. Because if she didn't do that, it was a sign that God's judgment was upon you. 
If a woman was barren, the tradition of Judaism and the customs said that she was in sin, and God was removing his blessing, including the property he had given them, for a period of time. Eventually, through kinsmen redeemers, that property would end up theoretically back in the family or through the year of Jubilee. But for the time being, you have turned your back on me. Therefore, I am not going to bless you with children. I'm not going to let you maintain the responsibility that I ask you to have. Kind of interesting, isn't it? It comes full circle. It was all based upon God giving them family property. And we don't think about that very much. We think about each story in a vacuum, and we kind of look at it and kind of go, oh, what a sad moment, what a good moment. But there's a lot of stuff going on under the scene. And this story is no exception. This man had two wives. Sometimes or often under the old, uh, in the old system, a man had more than one wife. Partially uh, because of this, uh, if, if one wife couldn't get a child, uh, as in the story of Abram and Sarai, uh, she would give her handmaiden to him. He would marry Hagar, and she would become another wife, and then she would offer him the sons or the children that the original wife couldn't. Sometimes it would be under contract where a man wanted, his, uh, wanted to, to come together on property or in business, and so he would give his daughter to a man and they would marry. You'll see that along with the kings of Israel, who, by the way, were forbidden from doing that with foreign women. A lot of the rebellion and the messed up nature of the nation of Israel is because the kings kept marrying people outside. Solomon is a classic example of that, who some believe had between 900 and 2,000 wives. And in case you're wondering how he took care of each of them, he didn't. He didn't. It wasn't a sexual thing. It was an organization thing. Maybe he slept with all of them at some point, and I'm trying to be lofty because there's a lot of kids in the room. And for those of you who just heard me teach that, you can go home and teach your kids sex education. It's very important. On a side note, if you do not, somebody else will, and I encourage you to do it. So how much do I teach them? Just enough to answer their question. We always used to tell our kids, this is free too, that when our kids would start asking questions that were more than I was ready to teach at the time, we would tell them that that is a box that we could pick up and hand to them and that they could carry it for a few moments, but eventually it would become too heavy, and once you pick up the box, you can't set it down. So trust mom and dad to tell you when you need to pick that box up. But to answer your questions... It's through uh, mommies and daddies that God make babies. Okay, and if they don't like that answer and you're not ready to answer more, tell them that there's cookies in the kitchen. <laughs> but I do warn you, and this is a side note, if you do not teach your kids, somebody else will, like television and like Disney, even the Disney Channel. Teach your kids. It's important. Chapter 1, verse 3. Each year... Elkanah, the husband, would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of heaven's armies at the tabernacle. Faithful Jews would make a trek to the tabernacle at least once a year for major feasts as instructed in, in Exodus 23. I'm just going to say this because somebody's going to read Exodus 23 today and I'm going to get a text and I don't want to correct it next week. So having said that, they were actually instructed in Exodus to go three times a year for the three major festivals. It tells us in this text that Elkanah did it once a year annually he would go. It doesn't mean that he wouldn't go uh, three times a year. It just tells us that he went at least once a year. It was a 15-mile journey from where he lived to the tabernacle at that time. Verse 4. The priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hiphni and Phinehas. Am I the only one who thinks like that sounds like a great cartoon channel cartoon names? Um, I'm just going to point out that, remember that this is a historical book. You don't read it chapter by chapter. And the next week, we're going to find out about these boys. They were not good boys. It's going to tell us a lot about Eli. Um, having said that, one of the days that Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give, or on the days, he would give uh, portions of the meat to uh, Penna and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, 
he would give her only one but a choice portion. A choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Penna would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Penna would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. So ladies, as you sit here and you hear about a man having two wives and you think about how that would be, I want to make it clear that you are correct when you thought a few minutes ago that more than one wife is one wife too many. You see that in this text as well. The text infers that Elkanah had a favorite wife as well. And that favorite wife was Hannah. How can I say that? Because it says that he gave her choice pieces of meat. She still was only given a portion, while Penna and her children were each given a portion. So after they sacrificed, they would then have a meal. And pieces of meat would be given to each of their kids from the sacrifice. And, uh, and Hannah would be given it, but Hannah was given the choice piece of meat. Uh, as you know, having kids, especially sons, is a big deal. And so although he loved Penna and appreciated her, Hannah was his favorite. This was a big deal as it was a woman's pur uh, purpose. Uh, but the problem is, is that these two women had a secret war. And what hurt Hannah was that she couldn't provide for the man she loved, the family that he needed. Religiously, it was embarrassing. Socially, it was embarrassing. And she made it worse when Penna, every year, when they would go to the tabernacle to worship, pointed out that she hadn't had kids. Enter Elkanah, who is now going to comfort his wife. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Don't be downhearted just because you have no children. You have me. <laughs> Isn't it better than ten sons? Man, we were just as dumb when our wives cried back then as we are today. <laughs> we have never known what to say when our wives cry. Uh, Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage, a very good book, talks about women crying like men sweat. And we, it, we can even know that and it doesn't, well, it, it doesn't help. I like to tease the ladies on our staff that if they come into my office and cry, I will freeze. I don't know what to do. And that's what he does here. He doesn't know. He loves, he loves Hannah. He wants to comfort her. And he's got nothing else. He can't say, well, maybe you have had kids and you just don't know about it. There's nothing else to say. So he says what any man would say. Is my love not enough? Having me, isn't it better than ten sons? Aren't I enough, sweetheart? And the answer is no. It's not. It's not. People hurt. And Hannah hurt. Deeply. Deeply hurt. And was ashamed. And you know, I think shame is worse than hurt. Because it wasn't just that she couldn't provide her husband. She couldn't fulfill God's plan for her. She, and, and society knew it. And people would talk about it. Verse 9. Once after a sacrificial meal in Shiloh. So remember that he's saying once this happened. This happened every time they went. Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish. That's Hebrew for she was really hurting. Crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow. O Lord of heaven's armies, if you, look up, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. On one of her visits to Shiloh, 
to worship the Lord, Hannah made a vow to God that if ever given a son, as she requests, she would dedicate him to her under the Nazarite vow found in Numbers chapter 6. The long hair thing, you're probably wondering about that. I, I can't answer why all that is. I can just tell you that you are familiar with this because there's another character in Scripture who was a judge whose hair was long. His name was what? Samson. If you go back and read the story, his parents made a similar vow that if, in fact, you give us a son, we will dedicate him to you uh, under the Nazarite law. And so the cutting of the hair was a sign. So when Samson has his Philistine wife cut his hair, he's flipping God off. He's saying, forget the vow. I'm strong because of me. Boy, oh boy. You may sing good, you may preach good, you may minister well, and you may be the biggest, best, biggest mother. That's not good. Uh, the best mother the world ever saw, but you better remember where that comes from. Back to the story. Verse 12. As she was praying to the Lord, she's in the temple, tabernacle. She's praying. She's pleading. Her heart is broken. You can visualize that. Eli's watching her. Verse 13. Seeing her lips moving but not hearing a sound, he thought she'd been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded? Throw away your wine, woman. Now you know where Baptists get it. We always assume the worst. Now let me defend this, and let me tell you how bad this really is. Eli had reason to believe that she was a sinner, okay? He had reason to believe she didn't have children. Religious culture and even some biblical text might infer that that's an accurate, accurate assumption. The problem is he didn't know her. He didn't put his arm around her and try to minister to her. He didn't pray with her. He just made assumptions. Just because somebody walks into the church with piercings in places you don't think they should be or wearing clothes that you don't think they should wear or behaving in a way that you don't think they should behave as long as they're not a distraction, I'm going to always add that, doesn't mean they don't love God. And this guy makes assumptions. And maybe they're based on some experience he's had or maybe even some tradition or teaching in the church, but his assumptions are wrong. And he doesn't just go at her and say, how can I minister to you? He goes at her and he says, throw your wine away. And she reacts. Verse 15. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of anguish and sorrow. He listens. In that case, Eli said, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and she began to eat again and she was no longer sad. I want to simply make in the rest of our time here two observations about this. First, words matter. What we say in ignorance, even if history, culture, tradition gives you the right to make assumptions, until you actually sit and listen to somebody, you better be careful what you say. In James, James wrote this in James chapter 3, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes. If we, uh, for if we control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though, when, uh, though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. 
and among all the parts of the body. The tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our God and Father, and sometimes it curses those who who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. And James 1.19 actually encourages God's people in how to handle our tongue. Understand this, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. If Eli would have done that, he could have built her up and not torn her down. The truth is, even in our marriages, we make assumption about our spouse's before we know what's really going on in their hearts. You don't know, I've listened to her 300 times on the same issue. 301 is in order. Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry. This this woman just wanted to be a mom. That's all. Didn't do anything wrong. And nobody's on her side, and her husband doesn't even know how to comfort her. This exhortation, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, is something we men need to learn. By nature, we are fix-it men. We, we try to fix things. I have learned in 33 years of relationship with my wife that there's a lot in her heart I can't fix. So if Mark would just shut up and, and comfort her, sometimes a woman just needs to cry and be held, not talked at. Men, we shouldn't be like Elkanah or Eli. We shouldn't. We need to learn. Um, I want to apologize for those of you who don't think men and women are different. You're different. We're different. Some women may be more man-like, and some men may be more woman-like, but we're still different. You're not a rock. You're not a baboon. You're not a pickle. You're a woman, and you're a man. And no matter what culture says, because a man wants to be a woman doesn't make him a woman. Because I want to be a millionaire doesn't make me a millionaire. I can want to be a lot of stuff. I can want a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys next week if they get a line. But it doesn't make me the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. And I want you to know that I understand, I understand that this is going to offend some people, But not only do we need to realize that we are made in the image of God and we are made male and female according to Scripture, but you need to, as a man, understand how different your wife is. And as a wife, you need to understand how your husband's different and bend that way. Understand each other. Slow to speak. Quick to listen. Slow to anger. But I've been with him for 400 years. He's driving me nuts. He's your problem. We've all got it. Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. I love it. Second observation, and this is probably the one that's more important. Godly men and women get depressed. It happens. From Naomi in our last study to Elijah to Jeremiah the prophet to Hannah here, Just because you fear the Lord and have seen him work in miraculous ways 
does not mean that you're protected from deep grief and even depression. As the Jews, or I think in the story Eli, and those who saw this woman who couldn't bear children, they saw her mourn. As we watch, there is an unspoken rule that depression is the result of sin or lack of surrender. I think Scripture proves that that's not the case. It happens. People hurt. They grieve. And I think that before we start assuming things about people, we should tread lightly. Going back to the first one. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to get angry. Hannah proves that the assumption that godly men and women don't get depressed is a lie. This is a woman who was seeking the Lord for her grief. Here is a woman with the deepest form of grief in her culture who had even stopped eating, which is a symptom of deep depression. So She is so uh, concerned that her Jewish husband starts trying to comfort her. If you're not a comforter, Jewish husbands are really not usually comforters. What does she do? She runs to God. She cries out to God. Learn from Hannah. Learn from Hannah. Are you barren? Do you want children more than anything? Run to God. Are you single and and searching for that spouse? Are you sick of hearing everybody else couple up and you're not? That's real grief. Run to God. Do you live in fear? Fear of your own health. Fear of your children. Run to God. Are you depressed? Run to God. Learn from Hannah. Run to him. Has the world turned its back on you? Does the world believe you've earned this thing you're struggling with? Run to God. I want to remind you, in our last study, that the reason that we have the story of Ruth and Boaz is that, is that Ruth's father-in-law, Naomi's husband and Naomi, don't run to God, they run from God. And they solve their human problem. When they got to Moab, they found food. They found wives for their kids. They lived. And it was so deeply rooted that when Naomi finally returns to Israel, she actually says, I left with everything and I returned with nothing. There is in this life temporary satisfaction available to you in the form of alcohol, in the form of of sex outside of your marriage relationship, in the form of feeding your flesh, in the form of bitterness, even in the form of religiosity. But anything other than God, including religiosity, only makes you worse in the end. Run to God. Don't look for a solution to your problem. Let God find a solution to your problem. We keep saying, if only, like Abraham did with, uh, and Sarai did with Hagar. Or Abraham did going, Ishmael, I choose Ishmael. No, I'm going to give you Isaac. But I want Ishmael. And you're going to see in the future, the mistake that we see throughout First and Second Samuel, including David, is they keep taking God's work in their own hands. David wanted a place, and he, he loved God so much, that he wanted a place that he could build as a place of worship, the temple. But God said, no, you're not that man. I will not let you build that temple. You have to understand that God's got a plan that he doesn't choose to involve us in understanding. And Hannah got that. Hannah got that. She's running to God. Learn from Hannah. 
I'm going to remind you as long as the Lord allows me to preach. The reason Jesus came and lived among us was so that he could feel what we feel, including our deepest grief. We don't grasp this. In Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16, it tells us this. The high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. And why does it matter? The very next verse, 16. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and find his grace to help us when we need it the most. That's what Hannah did. Hannah ran to God every year. She ran to God. In fact, she ran to God so much, and he's telling us a story. You know what's really interesting about this? Side note, Samuel's writing about his mommy. <laughs> he is, he's writing about his mother. That's why he doesn't have a lot in it for Pina. Her, her other wife? The other one? Because he probably doesn't like her very much. She was rude to his mother. And what is amazing to me about this is that in all the stories he could have told, he could have told year after year that this happened, but one time because he wanted to point out that his mom went to God with, his, with her pain, ran to God. Why did Jesus, why was Jesus here? He could have floated down on the crowd, uh, uh, floated down a week before his death, a week before Easter. He could have had the world turn their back on him. He could have been crucified in the same way. He could have shed the blood, but he didn't. He chose to be here for 33 years. And why? Because he wanted to understand what it's like to live human. In the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah says that this was a man who had no offspring. The only reason that that would be in the scripture is because that's one of the things that I believe you can say grieved him. I've told you this before, and I cannot prove it from scripture except that Isaiah passage. Why would it be in there if it weren't true? I think that it's reasonable as a Jewish young man growing up, and Jesus was a man with his own way. How do I know that? Because Jesus over and over said, I didn't come to do my, my own will. I came to do my father's will. I'm not sure that it didn't stroke his human ego. It's not a sin. But it didn't stroke his ego to have Mary Magdalene following him around so closely. He might have thought she'd have made a good wife for me. He might have wondered what it would be like to have children with her. I'm not talking about uh, the intimacy act. I'm talking about, see, I do have some filtering. But yeah, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about the fact that Jesus Christ struggled with all the feelings we had. And some of those feelings were singleness and parentlessness. Please understand that as you go through your life single and wonder why you don't have a spouse, as you go through your life without children and wonder why you don't have kids, your Savior understands that pain. We have a high priest who gets it. You know, the problem with Thanksgiving and Christmas is that after Thanksgiving and Christmas, the same pain you had before exists after. It's like a hangover. Oh, I'm going back to work Monday. Oh, I hate my boss. Not enough money. How am I going to pay for Christmas? You can pretend for 12 hours if you get enough turkey that life is good. But it ends, doesn't it? You know, she probably went home every year after being mocked and after going to the temple. Hannah probably went home and probably tried to forget it for the next couple months. Didn't work. So she decided to give it to God. Back to Hannah, verse 10 of 1 Samuel 1. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And, he, and she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you look down on my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his, uh, his hair will never be cut. Uh, some theologians want to make um, a point here that she's not bartering with the Lord. Sounds to me like she is. I don't know why this isn't a barter. But she just basically says, I will give him back to you. If you give him to me, 
I will give him to you. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her. Seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound, she thought that she, he thought that she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I, I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged, and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant, requ uh, grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. This was very moving for me as a pastor. I need to be careful what I say to people. I need to be careful of my assumptions. Just so you know, you're not the only ones who struggle with prejudice. Only mine aren't usually skin color. It's, it's white people who grow up Baptist. Seriously. Whenever I hear somebody say something like, bless God, I kind of go, what, what are you talking about? Why are you talking like that? And I make assumptions, and i got to stop. It's not right. See, we're all growing. And I don't know about you, but I want to be like Christ. I really do. I actually want to treat people like he would treat them. I know I'm not going to make it, but I'm sure not going to make it, I'm not going to miss it for lack of trying. And, 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 you know, 2018 is coming, and we have the opportunity to change the way we live. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can change. We can actually live for God in East Texas this next year in a way that, I don't know, D.L. Moody used to say, the world is yet to see a man who is 100% devoted to God. I want to be that man. Well, that's arrogant. Why is that arrogant? How about you? How about me? I want to do ministry in 2018 better than I've ever done it before. And that doesn't mean working harder. It means loving more. Being slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger. It's not that there's never anger. It's not that there's ever, never judgment. It just means I need to listen first. If you've been in my office, you know that that's a struggle for me. I do not need you emailing an amen or edging your wife. Going, <laughs> you see, he knows. It's true, I know. I make assumptions, and it's wrong. And I'm sorry. Because what, what, what words come out of my mouth matter. They matter to Julie. They matter to my kids. And they matter to you. Now you just have to learn, though. Here's what you've got to learn. You've got to learn when Mark is being quiet, it's because he's not saying what he's thinking. Because, you know, when Mark is quiet, what are you thinking? I'm listening. Mark must be having a bad day. Yes, I'm that guy. I'm not having a bad day. I'm learning to keep my mouth shut because I'm probably wrong. I love this. I love this story. She goes back in peace because he brought her comfort. God will hear you. He brought her comfort. There's something special about meeting with God and his people. That's why we gather, by the way, not for another good message or because you don't know this stuff. We gather because sometimes you need to look in the eyes of others and have them say, God's good. I just got diagnosed with cancer. I know. We all knew you were going to die. Now we just know what the title is. Still good. Seriously, isn't there something comforting about knowing? I mean, I sit down at people's bedside a lot who are just told by a doctor they're not going to make it. And you know what I try to tell them every time if I know that they're children of God? Oh, you've prepared for this journey. I'm scared. I know. You do not go it alone. We'll walk with you. And when we hand you off, the one who picks you up will be better than you could ever possibly imagine. It really isn't, there really isn't bad news for the child of God in this life. You see, that's, that's the hope of our salvation is even though we die, yet then shall we live, Jesus says. The worst day in Lazarus' life was what? When he was raised from the dead because he had to go through the dang thing again. I mean, it was, it was, 
Nobody wants to die, except for a few of you weird people. But nobody really wants to die. He had to die twice. Are you kidding me, Jesus? I was sleeping, I was resting, I was talking to people in Abraham's bosom. What's up with that? <laughs> you get to do it again in six weeks. Oh, God's good. Verse 19, the entire family got, uh, got up uh, early the next morning, went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home to Ramah. When uh, Elkanah slept with Hannah, the Lord remembered her plea, and in due time she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel. That's me. For she said, I asked the Lord for him. That's what his name means. Which, by the way, Julie and I could not have children for eight years for whatever reason, and that's why Zach's middle name is Samuel, because we asked for him. What a nightmare he has been. Don't ask for everything. <laughs> He's on a plane to Chicago. He didn't hear that. Verse 21, the next year, Elkanah and his family went in uh, on their annual trip to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and to keep his vow. Pay attention to this, because I think this is a really cool part of the story. But Hannah did not go. She told her husband, you know, sweetheart, as much as I enjoy this 15-mile trip, I think I'm going to wait until the boy is weaned, and then I'll take him to the tabernacle, and I'll leave him there with the Lord permanently. Whatever you think is best, sweetheart. You go ahead and stay here from now, but may the Lord help you keep your promise. Ah, you're getting it now. That's one of those lines we don't think of. Why? Question. Why did he ask, tell her that? Go ahead, somebody answer. Yep, because he was afraid she wouldn't take and fulfill her vow. So even godly women have second thoughts. And I don't know if she did or not, but her husband was worried enough about it. I think that he's a pretty cool guy. I think that for him to say, okay, honey, you stay home this year, but next year, when he's weaned, just remember to keep your vow, honey. Dear Lord, help my wife, your daughter, keep her vow. We're so busy trying to tell each other what to do, sometimes we forget to encourage and pray. Great example here. So she stayed home, and she nursed the boy until he was weaned. Verse 24, when the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle in Shiloh. They brought along a three-year-old bull for sacrifice and, and uh, a basket of flour and some wine. After sacrificing the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked. I'm that very woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he granted my request. Now I am giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worshiped the Lord there. This is what it looks like to be godly, depressed, have God meet your need and then have to give him back. This is what that looks like. This is what it looks like for God to answer the prayers you asked it. And this is what it looks like to keep your word to him and realize that he's in charge. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up or whoever's left of them because I want to, this song is so good. It's such a great way to end. As they're coming up though, I want to read you the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 2 because Hannah at the temple, or tabernacle, it's not temple yet, it's tabernacle, praise this to the Lord. My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because she even prayed about her, her, her the other wife. I keep saying sister wife because that's on TV. I rejoice because you rescued me. No one is holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Stop acting so proudly and haughty. 
Don't speak with such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows what you've done. He will judge your actions. The bow of the mighty is now broken, and those who stumble are now strong. Those who were, uh, were well-fed are now starving, and those who were starving are now full. The childless woman has, now has seven children, and the women with many children waste away. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but raises others up. The Lord makes some poor and others rich. He brings some down and lifts others up. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them up among princes, placing them in seats of honor. He will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in darkness. No one will succeed by strength alone. Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to his king. He increases the strength of his anointed one. Then Elkanah returned home to Ramah without Samuel, and the boy served the Lord by assisting Eli the priest. Does any of this prayer sound familiar to you? It should, because this prayer was prayed again. A piece of this prayer in Greek, as it's recorded for us, is prayed. Let me read it for you. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he took notice of this lowly servant girl. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. Who is this? This is Mary. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful, for he made the promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. This is what it looks like to be a woman of God. This is what it looks like to be a man of God. This is what it looks like to put your trust in him. This is what it looks like to raise godly kids, put them in the baptismal when they want to be baptized. This is what it looks like to say, okay, God, they're yours. Too often, we take our 10-year-old kids and we baptize them and take them back. They're God's. They're not yours. They've accepted his offer to forgive their sin. Your job as a parent of a kid who surrendered their life to Christ is to make sure they finish. Wean them spiritually. Raise them up not to be a millionaire, but to have a heart for God that is golden. We are raising young people to be successful in America. Raise them to be successful in the family of God. Raise men who will be godly men and lead godly wives. Raise your girls not to be hot, but to be hot for God. And we're struggling with that in the church. We're struggling with that. Don't dress them well in physical ways only. Dress them well spiritually. Give them to God. But my son wants to be a missionary in Africa. Let him go. He's not yours. Of course, it's cheap for me to say my son has been in Chicago for four years and he's coming to Fort Worth. Still three and a half hours away, but it's only three and a half hours. I don't know where God's going to call him, but he's not my kid. And for those of you who don't have kids at all, take it to God. Take it to God. Well, what if he doesn't give me a child? What if he doesn't? Then raise somebody else's child. We need your help. Make your life an offering to God. Be like Hannah. Listen to this song. He confessed He would not raise up He resigned he is not restrained. Oh, hear the sound. Oh, hear the sound. 
rocks are falling, the broken calling to the God who moves the mountain. The earth is shaking, the weary waking to the God who moves the mountains, the God who moves the
this is a good week. This is a good morning for me. God has spoken to me. I'm full. This message may have been just for me. But I hope, I hope that you're with me and that I'm with the weary going, I want to wake up, man. I want to trust God for a husband for my daughter and a wife for my son and for this church. I want to trust God for my future and my health and my wife's health. I want to trust him. And when my time comes, I still want to trust him. I still want to trust him. Father God, thank you for being the God who moves mountains. And the earth is shaking with your authority and your power. Now wake up those of us who are weary to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study will start in about five minutes.